Well, if you would, find Esther in your Bible this morning. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, and Psalms, so you can work backwards from there. As uh, our pastor Nathan has said, we are starting a new series this morning in the book of Esther. Today's sermon will be the first of seven sermons that will be preached in this series. will take us all the way into the middle of December, into the Advent season. Well, before we begin, let's ask for God's help uh, one more time. God, we do ask for help. We are needy. Here we are, Your people, and we feel, we feel in the, the depths of our own souls our great need our great need to hear from You. And so we're asking that You would establish Your Word in the hearts of Your servants and it would produce reverence for You. We're praying that You would cause the Word to come in power. That our faith and hope would rest upon You and not in man's wisdom. Holy Spirit, we're asking that You would come and open our eyes to behold the beautiful Christ and that we would be changed into His image. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was born in 1975 at St. Anthony's Hospital in Crown Point, Indiana, which is located in Lake County in the very northwest corner of the state. I'm the oldest of four. And I lived in Hammond, Indiana, which is not far from where I was born there in Crown Point until the age of four, when due to a job change, we moved. So from ages five until age nine, I lived in a place called Calumet Township, which is now Gary, Indiana, famous for its steel mills, Michael Jackson, and its crime rates. Well, after the fourth grade, we moved again. And finally, to a place called Lowell, Indiana, again located in the same county, a small rural farming community where my parents still reside today. So I grew up in Lowell. I went to middle school there, high school, and graduated and went to college from there. It was also there in the fifth grade that I encountered a blonde-haired, blue-eyed farm girl. Eight years later, after going to school together and liking each other at different times, and finally liking each other at the same time, we began dating the summer after we graduated, and we've been together ever since. I attended two colleges. My freshman year, I went to Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, and the next four, I was on the five-year plan. I attended Purdue University in West Lafayette. In January of 1998, I married the blonde-haired, blue-eyed farm girl, and we moved to Memphis, Tennessee, where I began working for a home builder, building homes. In 2000, the housing market just happened to implode, and I ended up being laid off and started working for a commercial contractor. We were members of Bellevue Baptist Church for eight years. When we first moved here, we started until Grace Church began in 2006. So 21 years after we moved here, three apartments, two houses, six kids, one dog, two rabbits, Here we are today on October 27th, 2019, almost 44 years ago from when I was born. Now some of you know more of the details of that story because you just know us more and maybe longer, and some of you are probably hearing those things 
for the first time. And what I didn't do, because of time's sake, is give you all the details. Every turn, every trial, every motive, every choice, every joy, every hardship, every tear, every laugh, every shock, surprise, every needed deliverance, every rescue. I didn't mention God's work, His purposes, His discipline, His nearness, His mysterious movements, His grace, but it's in there. He's in the story. And we all have stories, and yours probably sounds much different than mine. Different places you were born, different twists and turns, and different ways that you actually ended up here this morning, literally. And if we're honest, it's usually easier for us to see that grace when we look in the rearview mirror. The graces of God, the rescues, the, the deliverances, the purposes. We, we usually don't see those things until we look behind us. And I suspect most of us, it seems the way God works, will likely not know all of it until we reach heaven. And we often think in our stories that God is not among us because we don't see His visible hand. Lord, if You're with me, please show Yourself is often our mantra. Does He care? Is He with me? And if we're honest, it's getting harder to live in these days, increasingly more hostile The South is starting to catch up to the East and the West with the post-Christian world. We're strangers as God's people in a foreign land where the majority of people don't share our beliefs. And it's hard sometimes to live. Is God really with us? Well, such is the book of Esther that we begin this morning. We can relate to this story. A story where we find characters and twists and turns and grand reversals. Good and evil. Some details... Some not so detailed. Nothing super flashy. No big miracles to speak of. No seas parting. No thunderous voice from a cloud. No lightning flashes. No wet fleeces. No talking donkeys. God's people in Esther living in a pagan land. Increasingly more hostile. How do they live in this evil culture? Where is God when the danger comes? Because it does come. And will He come? Add to this the uniqueness of the book of Esther. Other than the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, there's no explicit mention of God. He's not named. There's no Messiah. There's no outward miracles, as we've already said. No visions, no prophecies. Is God's law there? No, we don't see it. There's really only one visible spiritual thing, and it's fasting, which happens a few times. Well, Esther is a true story. A gripping story of good and evil, and one that includes, as I said, a grand reversal where God's faithfulness to His promises shines bright. Little by little, providence by providence, in the circumstances, flow from His loving kindness. And God delivers His people in this story from their enemies. Though He seems, seems in italics, silent in the midst of troubles, He's there. His purposes will not be thwarted. Well, Nathan mentioned uh, Tim Kaine, our good brother, his commentary, which I hope most of you have read. You received it in our members' meeting. He, he noted this. As the story unfolds, the culture grows hostile towards God's people. And before you know it, they find themselves in grave danger. All the while, the God of the Bible seems so strangely silent. The fact is, like with us, He's not silent. He's there. It's also a story, the book of Esther, that teaches us how the Feast of Purim started. 
We'll see that in chapter 9. And that's still acknowledged today by the Jewish people. They read the book of Esther and they recount with cheers and celebrations about how they were saved from their enemies. Now we're going to look at the first chapter and the second chapter today, but before we jump in there, we need to look at the plot of the book because the first two chapters and everything that surrounds the book is surrounding that plot. So I'm going to do a spoiler alert. I'm sure most of you know the story, but I'm about to spoil it for you what happens. Well, in chapter 3, we learn that one of the characters, Haman, which we'll get to, sets out by a government decree, and I quote from chapter 3, to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, and to seize their possessions as plunder. Kill them all. Everywhere. There's nowhere to hide. Now, everything in this story surrounds that plot. Everything that happens before and after. How do God's people end up in this situation? Will God's people be delivered? How does it come? Is God faithful to His promises and to His people? That's in part the book of Esther. Now, as we walk through chapter 1 and chapter 2, which we are going to do today, I've categorized a few headings. It's just walking through the narrative to kind of give us some places to hang some truth on. So the king and his banquet, the queen and her refusal, and the replacement queen and her rise. And it just walks right through the narrative. So let's consider first the king and his banquet. And if you'll read with me there, meet me at chapter 1, verse 1. I'll read it for us. Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. When these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were hangings of fine white and violet linen, held by cords of fine purple, linen on silver rings and marble on columns, and couches of gold, and silver on a mosaic pavement of pophry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. The drinking was done according to the law, where there was no compulsion. For so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Verse 9, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Well, the opening verses were already introduced to the first character of our story, King Ahasuerus. Now, we need to do some history lifting if we're going to understand the book of Esther. The Greeks called him Xerxes. So if you've ever heard that name Xerxes, that was the Greek name for Ahasuerus. His name, Persian, Hebrew, and then we get English, what we name him in this book. And this king comes to us from a very long line of historical kings. And to understand the book, we also need to understand, and your kids are probably walking through this, I had to have a primer again, but the Persians and the Greeks didn't really like each other. 
Two big empires fighting all the time, scheming, battles, empire against empire. So we have King Ahasuerus. His dad was King Darius. Many of you know that name from the book of Daniel and other books in the Bible. So Darius was Xerxes' dad. And Xerxes inherited the kingdom from his dad, this great Persian empire. Now, his dad was a pretty angry guy. He hated the Greeks. And he never really fully beat them. And so it made him angry. And he plotted and he never really got his chance because he died before he could. So, Ahasuerus inherited his dad's desire for bloodlust. He hated the Greeks. One commentator noted about Xerxes or Ahasuerus, the tallest and most handsome of the Persian kings, he was ambitious and a ruthless ruler, a brilliant warrior and a jealous lover, which we will see in the book of Esther. It's also during this time in the book of Esther, which we don't learn, but we do learn from history, especially in chapter 1 and into chapter 2, that he was uh, at war with Greece. So King Xerxes is making battle plans, and he goes and he fights this big major battle. That happens during chapter 1. We get that from history. It's also about a hundred years after the exile to try to place the book of Esther. So you remember the exile, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. So Jerusalem is taken, the temple's destroyed, and God's people are scattered throughout the Babylonian empire. So cue the book of Daniel. So God's people didn't obey the covenant, and so the covenant curse comes as God had promised, and they're exiled. They're taken from their homes, they're scattered throughout the nations, and they have to wait until they can return home. Now another king, King Cyrus. You probably know that name. Well, in Ezra 1, we learn that King Cyrus was the king that God used and controlled to proclaim that everyone could come back from the exile. Well, that King Cyrus is also Ashuerus' grandfather. So to place us in the book of Esther, we have King Xerxes or Ashuerus. His dad was Darius, died before he saw Greece conquered, and so he inherited that. And the exile has been about a hundred years before that, and King Cyrus, who is his grandfather, was a part of that. Well, Ezra and Nehemiah tell us that many of the exiles returned home and rebuilt, but some did not. So what we have in the book of Esther, a little Jewish community that Esther and Mordecai, who we'll learn about later, stayed in Susa. So here they are, God's people in a foreign land, a minority living in a new pagan culture. This concludes our history lesson for the day. So that seats us in the book of Esther. So we have King Eshuharis. He hates the Greeks. He's fighting the Greeks in this chapter, though we don't see it yet, but that's what's going on in history. Okay, so let's go back to chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. What does the author tell us about this king? Well, we know that he reigned over a good piece of land. It says from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. So we're not talking about one or two. He's sovereign over quite a bit. And there's been some discussion from scholars. Is it really 127 or 120? Or what does that mean? Regardless, the reality is this guy had a lot of real estate. And the author wants us to know. One commentator noted the author may also be implying that there was nowhere the Jews could go to hide from the decree of death that would be pronounced against them. So when we fast forward to chapter 3, they couldn't run, they couldn't hide. The annihilation of the Jews, we wanted them killed. They couldn't go anywhere. So King Xerxes basically had a reach. 
So this isn't like us having 30 years left on a mortgage before it's ours. This is 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. It also tells us that his royal throne was in the citadel at Susa. It's right there in verse 3, verse 2 and verse 3. Back in the day, there were four capital cities that the Persians ruled from. And it's understood that it was way too hot in the summer to rule from here. So it's likely the winter time where it's a little cooler for them. But it's a place of safety, a place of refuge for the king and his court. So we've got this king. Heshuerus, pretty big empire. He's got four houses, fortified, he's safe. He's got some power and some money, and we're only in verse 2. The author wants us to know about the opulence of this king. And in verse 3, we learn that he threw a banquet. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army of officers in Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes and the provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. So this banquet is six months long. And it says that it's to basically impress the people who are there. There's a lot of dignitaries there. What history tells us is this is kind of him trying to get some support for this battle campaign that he's about to go out in and fight the Greeks on their own territory. So he wants to, to, to impress them. The author is making note of all of the descriptions of what this banquet was like. So he wants to go out and fight the Greeks, and he wants support, so what's he do? He throws an impressive party that lasts for six months. He's putting on a show. Then after that party, we learn that he has another party. And that lasted for seven days, and all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa could come. Imagine being at these parties. Imagine if you were at both some likely were. The wine is literally flowing with liberality. It says that in verse 8. He actually makes a law to not have a law about the amount of alcohol that you can drink. I'm going to make a law that says you can drink however much you want. That's basically what it is. It's up to you. There's fine white and violet linens, hangings. There's precious stones, couches of gold. I've never seen a couch made out of gold, but he has a couch made out of gold. Drinks were served in golden vessels. Look, even on holidays in the Suggs house, you're probably getting a central barbecue cup. Or if you're lucky, you'll get a cup from Wrigley Field. It's still plastic and it has a Cubs insignia on it, but that's like fine china house. This man has golden vessels to drink out of. What's he doing? He's trying to impress. He's showing out, look at my power, look at my majesty. And the author is painstakingly showing us this. He's detailing it for us. The only other time in Scripture that we get something detailed like this is when the temple is described. Well, history helps us. We don't see it in the book, but history helps us with the first reversal. You know, the book is about a grand reversal that comes about as we work through the book. And this is part of the beauty of the book of Esther. The, the human author of the book is unknown, but based on you know, what he knows about the Persian Empire, the customs, laws, and the story... He's close to it. It was likely written after the events. But the original readers of the story, when they read the story from the author, they know what happened between chapter 1 and chapter 2. He does go out and fight that battle. And he gets beat pretty bad. And he comes back to the citadel with his tail between his legs and his wealth depleted. So chapter 1 
owing to history, completely gets reversed. It doesn't say that here, but all that show for six months, all that wealth gone after one military campaign, things are not as they seem, which is another theme that runs through this book. Imagine being a Jewish family, reading the account. Does he have power? Yes, he has power. Does he have wealth? Of course he has wealth. But off in the distance, Xerxes is going to be defeated and plundered. And to the Jews who had read this story, they know the outcome. It would have been, as some commentators have said, laughable, celebratory. The great reversal, the great king who was plundered. Well, and as we're about to learn, this king who is all-powerful can't even get his wife to listen to him. So we pick up now with Vashti, the queen and her refusal. Read with me there in verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zether, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. But the queen Vashti, rather, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry, and his wrath burned within him. Now it's the last day of the feast. People are feeling pretty good. Most likely most are drunk. And the king, who has shown off his wealth and power to the people, wants to show off his most prized possession, his beautiful wife. So he calls for her. And she refuses to come. Now the author doesn't tell us exactly why she didn't come. Perhaps she knew that she was about to be paraded in front of a bunch of drunk men. But we don't know. But regardless of why she didn't come, she didn't come. She said no. And this would have been tremendously embarrassing for the king. Good old King Xerxes with all of his power and all of his wealth. It's insubordination. Well, he's pretty angry. And the author is making us feel the instability of this leader. Just when we read verse 12. His wrath burned within him. There's a story history tells us again, just to bring that in, that after he was defeated by Greece, he was so upset. They were trying to build a bridge into the mainland of Greece from wherever they were. And a weather storm came up and it completely knocked the bridge down. It just it delayed it. They were having problems. He was so upset with his bridge builders, even though it was a storm, he had all of them beheaded. He was so angry. And he wasn't done there. He had his soldiers go out into the sea with uh, flogs and uh, lashes to lash the water 300 times because he was upset with the sea. And he wasn't done there. He had some of his men throw shackles into the sea for its disobedience. So you can see he's a violent man, crazy, ruthless. History, Herodotus, that's the man wrote about him. So imagine the eggshells you're walking on in this guy's kingdom. The danger of living under this king. He's really upset with Vashti. So Vashti says, I'm not coming. The king doesn't look as big and strong as he used to. So in anger, what's he do? He demotes her. She's no longer able to come in the king's presence, which is really what she didn't want to do all along. And then if we read verses 19 through 22, one of his, one of his fellows believes that this is going to be a national disaster. If we just 
Let's pick up in verse 17. For the queen's conduct, he says, will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. This day, the ladies of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be a plenty of contempt and anger. So in verse 19, this guy wants to write an edict that basically says, when the king's edict which he will make is heard throughout the kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. So now they want to put into law how women should um, act at the house with their wives. And this word pleased, according to verse 21, the king and the princess. And the king did as Memukin proposed. So just like that, she's out. And just like that, the king's power doesn't look so glorious. And what's so funny about those passages, if you picked up on it, the embarrassment that he thought he was dodging is actually now going public. And so he's actually bringing more on himself. Again, things are laughable and they aren't always as they appear to be. And the Jews who read this book know the outcome. And it's also one of the giant providences in a long line, right? It's it's Vashti out and Esther coming in who ultimately will save her people from destruction as the human instrument. Well, let's look now under the third heading, the replacement queen and her rise picking up in chapter 2. As I said, what the author doesn't tell you is that after Vashti, he does go out to try to conquer Greece and he is humiliated. The riches are depleted and the kingly currency is lost with his people. He's not so strong after all and the king's a little down. It says there in chapter 2, verse 1, After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had been decreed against her. Then the king's attendants who served him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given to them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti, and the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. So his attendants, wanting to cheer him up, said, let's have a find a queen contest, right? And so they send these letters out. Let beautiful young virgins be found for the king. Let's go find them and we'll bring them to this head eunuch, Haggai, and he'll take care of them. He'll polish them up and there'll be a contest. Notice that the contest is really based on three things. Beauty, she had to be young and she had to be a virgin. They wanted someone to replace Vashti, likely to toe the line because she didn't. And so now we come upon the time where we meet Mordecai and Esther in verse 5. Now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconani, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Well, now we meet Mordecai and Esther, new characters in the story, 
And you'll notice the contrast as well. You had the opulence in chapter 1, all the riches, and now we come to a humble estate of two exiles here in Susa. Very much vulnerable. Well, we learn some important things about Mordecai as we see this new character. It makes it clear that he was a Jew in Susa, which is important. He's a Benjamite. And not only this, but he and his family were carried into exile. So the author makes sure that we know that Mordecai is associated with the covenant people of God being sent into exile. Also that we learn his family tree takes him back to King Saul, which is another important fact in the story that will play itself out later. So do you see the word kish there? The word kish in, let me find it, The son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish was Saul's daddy. If you remember Saul, King Saul, that's in 1 Samuel chapter 9. And why is this important? Well, it's important. He makes the tie back to King Saul because, do you remember Agag and the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15? Well, what did God tell King Saul to do? Well, we know the Amalekites were a problem for God's people, and God told King Saul to kill them all, everyone, the animals and everything. What did Saul do? He didn't obey, and we get Samuel coming in. What is the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen I hear? And we know that Samuel spared Agag and the best sheep to sacrifice. So the kingdom was torn from Saul because of that one great moment for his disobedience, and eventually we know that Samuel hacks Agag to pieces. So we say, okay, what's, what's the point? Well, we need to keep this in mind as we move further in the story when we get to Haman, because Haman is an Agagite. He's a descendant of Agag. And so you can already start to see, and the author's doing this on purpose, the fuel for the fire. So in a very real sense, Mordecai is going to do what Saul didn't do. We have an Agagite, and we have someone from Kish who's tied to King Saul. We also learn that Mordecai is Esther's overseer, really her father. She was adopted by him. She, her parents have died. And we learn from this account also that Esther is beautiful. She's beautiful in form and face. She has two names, Hadassah, which is her Hebrew name, and Esther, which is her Persian name. And it's not uncommon in exile. We see that in Daniel with those young men there having two names. And it's an important note, and it adds to one of the themes. Again, it's living ex exiles in a foreign land, living between two worlds, as it were. And this is one of the themes that the book highlights. Well, in the person of Esther, we finally meet the human instrument who God will use to deliver his people. So we fast forward through the rest of the chapter, and if we pick up in verse 8, so it came about when the command and the decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Hegai, that Esther was taken to the king's place into the custody of Hegai, who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him. So he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. Every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. Now when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Ashuharis, 
after the end of her 12 months, under the regulations for the women for the days of their beautification were completed as follows. Six months with the oil of myrrh and six months with the spices and the cosmetics for women. The young lady would go into the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem, to the custody of Shizgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not again go into the king unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go into the king, she did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Verse 16. So Esther was taken to King Ashuherus to his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. That's four years after Vashti, after Vashti gets thrown out. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his princes and his servants. He also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. So as we fast forward, we find that Esther finds favor with everyone, with the eunuch, and then in verse 15, she finds favor in the eyes of all who saw her, and then finally she, she finds favor with the king. Mordecai hasn't relinquished his care. He checks on her every day when she's there. She's taken to the king, and he, she wins his heart. Out of hundreds, maybe thousands of women, she finds favor. The replacement queen rises to the throne and in doing so sets up the rest of the story in the book of Esther. And the story that began with a feast in chapter 1, the opulent feast, is bookended here in chapter 2 with the feast for Esther. And as I said, it doesn't show up this way, but it's four years. Four years after Vashti is deposed, Esther becomes queen. Well, I want us to consider a few thoughts from the book as we close, but before we do that, uh, I just want to touch on something from the chapter that might be brewing inside of all of us as we read. Why doesn't the author tell us what these people were thinking, what their motives were? Why did Mordecai tell Esther to keep her mouth shut about who she was? We read that in verse 10. Isn't that compromising? We're thinking about God's people here. Daniel didn't do that when we read his story. How did she eat the food? She was... Jewish. Why would Mordecai let Esther go to the king knowing what that was all about? We wouldn't do that with our own daughters. And if we're honest, uh, that's all I'll say about it, we're, we're dealing with a very sexual chapter. We really are in chapter 2. We, we know what's going on. It's a beauty pageant, but it's so much more than that. And who wins the contest? Why doesn't Esther put up a fight? Esther, how do you feel about sleeping with a man who's not your husband and a Gentile, a pagan king. So if we're honest, uh, the king's contest, it's not in keeping with a biblical sexual ethic as we think about it. And if we're doubly honest, we know that Solomon's wasn't either. The author withholds their motives. He doesn't say anything about those things. And I have felt that tension when I've read it. You probably have too. 
With much Old Testament narrative, a lot of times you don't get those motives, those kinds of details. Uh, Mark Dever noted well in his commentary, questions about the methods, methods and morality of Mordecai and Esther surround them more than they surround other Jewish advisors to pagan kings in the Old Testament, like Joseph in Egypt or Daniel in Babylon. That doesn't mean that as God's people that we shouldn't wrestle with those things. We're aliens in a foreign land ourselves. We should discuss them. We should wrestle, search the Scriptures, have an opinion. But in this story, we simply are not told why some of the things are done the way they're done. But regardless of this, we do know that in the story, in spite of all the unknowns, that God is in the midst of the storms. He's in the midst of the actions that we're questioning moving the story along to fulfill ultimately His purposes and bring Him glory. Well, before we conclude, I want us to consider a few just closing thoughts from the book as we pull some things from these chapters. Three of them. One, God is faithful to His promises. We hear that a lot. We need to be reminded a lot. God, God is there. God is in this book. It's unique to the story, as we said, that God's never explicitly named. But He is working by His hand of providence. He's, he's ultimately the one who will deliver His people from their enemies, from the hands of Ammon and the evil empire. It's also a good place to note that God is certainly the character we've not talked about, and He's also the main character of the story. It's not a story primarily about Esther or Mordecai or you or me. It's a story about how God by His providence delivers His people and is faithful to His promises. Even when he cannot be seen, even in the midst of mess, he's managing the affairs and he's moving the story forward. One has said that Esther is Romans 8.28 in a grand display, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And here in the book of Esther, as we said, it's very similar to our lives, circumstances. He deals with us in very ordinary events. John Flavel, the wonderful Puritan, said, he who observes providence will never be long without a providence to observe. Well, let's just consider a few from the book. And there's many more, as you will see, as the book gets preached week after week. Well, Esther finds herself in the running for queen because Vashti is deposed. So we don't get Esther if Vashti is not deposed. And notice how many times we've already noted that Esther finds favor. It's noted specifically in the book. Chapter 2, verse 9 with Haggai. Chapter 2, verse 15, she found favor in the eyes of all who saw her, including the king. Who's working all this favor out? You have favor with your co-workers, with unbelieving family members, other people. God is the one that gives that favor. Have you ever thought about the providence in a drunken king? If it wasn't for his drunkenness, perhaps he never calls for Queen Vashti. If it wasn't for the feast, we don't have the drunkenness. Think about this, Esther and Mordecai just happened to be Jewish. They just happened to live in Susa. And Mordecai was her adopted father because her parents happened to both have died. And out of everyone in the empire, everyone, that call went out all over. The main characters of the story, humanly speaking, Mordecai and Esther. And Esther is chosen out of all of those people. God is there. So much providence will work throughout the rest of the books, the rest of the book in our study, but he's there. Are you familiar with Proverbs 21.1? The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. 
God is everywhere at all times. We look around at the world leaders and we think, this king, that king, this president, that president, we're in awe of their power and majesty. I mean, you see that in the book of Esther in chapter 1. And all the while, God turns those leaders wherever He wishes. Just like Cyrus, Darius, Xerxes, Trump. John Piper's right. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and we're maybe aware of three of them. There's a catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism. You've probably heard of it. Well, a good Baptist brother took that catechism and made it Baptistic and called it the Orthodox Catechism long ago. Question, what do you understand by the providence of God? Very good definition. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which He upholds as with His hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us, not by chance, but from His fatherly hand. God's hand is weaving in and out through the story of Esther to accomplish His purposes. We can look at the twists and the turns, the good and the bad, the motives that aren't present, and the tensions we feel in those decisions. And we can know, as Joseph knew, what you meant evil against me, God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many people alive. And if we zoom out even further, so we have the book of Esther, and we start zooming out into biblical theology, Esther is an unbreakable link in God's purposes to bring about an even better salvation for His people. Better than that in Esther, one that comes in Christ. Jesus would come, God in the flesh at the right time. We ultimately end up in the good land of the Gospel from the book of Esther. We know that when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoptions of the Son. So this Jesus, who was promised long ago in that same line, Jews are rescued from the Jewish people. He was promised beforehand through the promise. Prophets, rather, came to earth, lived perfectly, died and rose again, and He would bring us to God. Divine rescue and safety. The, the greatest reversal of all. Sinners and enemies, now the people of God. We have the book of Esther in this massive shadow that's cast forward to the new covenant in Christ. So much detail in the providence of God's work in bringing us to Himself. If you just read Matthew 1 and consider the providence is there, it'll blow your mind. His heart of love moving His finger through history to bring about the sinner's salvation. The place at the cross, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. Really the greatest display of God's faithfulness and the greatest good for His people at the cross. And we will be forever safe there. It's the greatest reversal. Well, if you're here this morning, and you'd say, I'm not a Christian. I would say, and you'd say, I don't really know what this book of Esther is about, God's providence, all that kind of stuff. I would just say that God's providence has brought you here in this chair, in this place. You could be a million different places, and God has brought you here by His providence, just happened to be in this place. Perhaps you're wondering what the story of an orphan girl in Susa has to do with you, but if we don't have the story of the orphan girl in Susa, who ultimately is the instrument of salvation from the enemies in that day, we don't get to Christ as we said, the, the true and better Esther, the one who will lay his life down for his people. 
So this seemingly unimportant book to you is a gracious invitation. It's the shadow that points forward to a kingdom, one who laid his riches aside and came to this earth so that the spiritually poor could become rich through his poverty. We know that he sacrifices his life on the cross and dies the sinner's death so that we would be rescued and he was raised again, securing that salvation. King Ahasuerus died in 465 B.C. Jesus is still alive. Without God rescuing his people, as we said, there's no rescue today. And as we've said, the rescue today is much more better than the one that those experienced in Esther's day. So friend, it is a grace to you as we consider the book of Esther. And he's not like Ahasuerus. He's the king of kings. And God has installed this king on his holy hill of Zion. And so the book of Esther is a gracious invitation to you today if you're here and you don't know Christ and it's also a warning to you. What we see in chapter 1 with the riches and the materialism and the power and all those things that we all try to grab for. If you're hoping in those things, there will be a tremendous great reversal at the end of days for you. A reversal of destruction. So by His providence, you are here. You are here in these seats and Jesus invites you to follow Him. Well, God does keep His promises. And number two, there's one more after this. There is a better king. I've already said it. Chapter one, I don't know if you, when you read this and you hear about this kingdom, we have such a tremendous king. Chapter one shows us how great Ashuharis is. He threw a lavish feast and he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days. 180 days. But he only appeared to be great. And he was great by worldly standards. Shortly after he was defeated, we know that his treasures were plundered. Well, God has established, as we said, his king according to Psalm 2. And blessed are those who do homage to him, who kiss the son, it says. Our king is a king of mercy as we sing around these places who entered the world humbly and sacrificed himself for his people. And unlike Ashuharis, his kingdom will have no end. He's the Son of the Most High, and with His love, He's bid us come to Him and follow Him. The Shepherd King, He keeps us safe. He keeps us safe forever. And we are His bride, and we will feast a greater feast ever displayed here in eternity with our King. I do want to note too that as in Esther's days, we're not home, we're exiles. We have a citizenship in heaven. And we also find ourselves in a pagan land with the promises of health, wealth, and prosperity materialism. So we're not exempt from those desires, those trinkets that are dangled in front of us. But as God's people, we're to see things differently than the world sees. We have new eyes and those trinkets in comparison to the riches of Christ do not compare. So with hearts of faith, I encourage you to pray new prayers influenced by Colossians 3. One of Paul Tyler's favorite verses, therefore if you've been raised up with Christ, Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The story of Esther presses us as God's people to see the world differently. And the author helps us to do that, to remind us that pursuing anything other than the treasure of Christ is foolishness. Our King of love, He is enough. Well, finally, number three, just something else from these chapters to personalize it for you. God is with you. Yes, God keeps His promises and in those promises, He is with you. But I wanted to pull that out and personalize that for you. 
it's good for us to be reminded that God is with us. I love the Feast of Purim, the origins that come from this book that we'll see later where the Jewish people still read this book to be reminded what God has done for them. And of course for us, on this side of the cross, we know that that throws a shadow to the new covenant in Christ and it culminates in redemption in Christ. So how much more for us to be acquainted with its pages? There's also a sense of celebration. Many commentators, as I've said, have said uh, celebratory or evoking hilarity when you think about what the author has said in this great reversal, things not looking as they seem. The author tells us the king is great, only to be sacked by the Greeks. So to an exiled people who are looking for comfort in the vulnerable world, that's funny. God's in control. It was prayed several times, and we see that in the book of Esther. Well, the beauty of the book, not mentioning God specifically, but knowing He's at work, is that it helps us feel what our lives are really like when we read the book of Esther. He's always at work. He's with us. Well, some of you know recently I've been battling some high-grade anxiety. Some of you know that. Now you all know it. And sometimes it's been panic. It's been low-level for quite some time, so I praise the Lord for that, but it's real. And the thing is, is up until three months ago, I never ever experienced anything like that. But God's been working in and through the season, through providences, other things, where I'm learning to refer to it as blessed anxiety. It's not perfect every day. I don't always say that, but I'm learning what that means. And one of the most beautiful truths that I have learned over the last three months in my head and in my heart is, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He is with me. He's with me. I may not see it in a thundercloud. It may not be there in the morning with lightning bolts. But He's there by His Spirit. And providentially, He's working out my relationships and my comings and goings. Nathan said it earlier. Maybe it was Prater. We're all a mess, right? We are. Exiles, vulnerable, evil cultures, sorrows, trials, anxieties, depression, postpartum depression, job loss. The list goes on and on, and we need to be reminded, and I think Esther does this for us so well, that God is there. He's with us. He who began a good work will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Even when we can't see Him, if we root around in the soil of this book, we'll find uh, the wonderful root of hope. J-E-S-U-S. And His presence is our comfort and our joy. So may God use this story in mighty ways to help us remember. Well, what if the book of Esther becomes an Ebenezer to you? I pray it does. I pray that you'd read it with fresh eyes like they do at Purim and say, if God did that, He can do this. That's what they say. If God can reverse that, how much more is He reversing in Christ? He always keeps His promises. He's not going to leave me or forsake me. Romans 15 says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. That's Romans 15. Sure, all those ladies had one year of cosmetics looking all pretty and polished up for the king. But as his people, the bride, our whole lives is that bridal room where he's making us holy. He's beautifying us. And we'll get to that feast. And it'll be a wonderful feast. Well, I was born in 1975 in St. Anthony's Hospital in Crown Point, Indiana. And Acts 17 tells me that God located me in history. And where I live now, and where I lived 
then. Due to a job change for my dad, we moved to Lowell, Indiana in 1985. This is the same school I met the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Brandy 13 years later. We were married. After my freshman year at Ball State, where I studied radio and TV broadcasting, yes, I studied that, my parents procured me a summer job in construction because our neighbor, who just happened to work for a concrete construction company, lived next door. After this summer, I transferred to Purdue, where I majored in construction management, the field that I work in today. In 1996, after hearing the gospel numerous times, the Holy Spirit opened my heart to believe the gospel in a 1998 Ford Ranger while listening to a cassette tape of John MacArthur preaching on the gospel according to Jesus. The gospel was first preached to me by my dad who has since turned away from Christ. During my final year in school, I signed up to interview with a company from Memphis. I don't know why, it was on the board. I said, I'll interview with this company. We were married at the time. It sounded fun to move away from Lowell for a season. In my interview with this company, which was on the fourth floor in a room in the back, every time he asked me a question, it was somebody else's office, there was a box full of stopwatches, and the stopwatch would not stop going off. Every question, stopwatch would go off, he'd stop it. This whole thing lasted for an hour. I got a second interview, won the job, and we moved to Memphis in 1998. Two months into my job, I found out that they felt so bad because of the stopwatch, that's why they offered me the second interview. Did God bring me to Memphis? Yes. Did a stopwatch bring me to Memphis? Yes. In 1998, Brandy and I moved to Memphis, and the first weekend here we found Bellevue Baptist Church. We lived right across the street, did not know about it. During our second week at this very overwhelmingly large church, we walked nervously into one of the many, 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 many Sunday school classes that are there, where we would stay until 2006. In 2006, while teaching the young married class at Bellevue on the theme of pride and humility, I was handing out some John Piper resources to, and one of our friends came up to Brandy to tell her that John Piper is planning a church in downtown Memphis. I had no clue what a church plant was, didn't know John Piper that well, but I knew those resources were really helpful. After a season of prayer and seeking counsel in early spring of 2006, I sent an email to Jordan Thomas telling him that we would like childcare for something called an interest meeting that would begin in September. In September of 2006, we came to interest meeting number one, and you have been stuck with us ever since. We did find out later that the friend that told us that John Piper was planning a church in Memphis was friends and taught with Tracy Thomas in her school teaching days. We had no clue that there was a tie there. As I said, since moving to Memphis, in 1998, three apartments, two houses, six kids, a dog, and two rabbits later, here we are today. Now, I don't know what will happen after I step out of this pulpit today. I don't know what the rest of the day or what the rest of my life will look like. But I do know that Christ will keep me forever because He promises to. And I do know that He's working out circumstances in my life to that end, weaving in and out a hidden hand often. And your life, beloved, will likely sound different but the providential stream of grace that started when you were born, even before you were born, will carry you all the way to that end. Well, as I said, the story's not about me. It's not about you as I close. It's not even about Esther, though she's important. It's a story about God. It is He who is faithful to His promise. It's He who lovingly keeps all of His promises intact with this great reversal by His invisible hand. It is this God who comes to us in Jesus, the true and better Esther. I'll close with this. Tim Keller notes this. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one. Who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish. 
But when I perish, I perish for them to save my people. He tasted death so that we would live. Well, I hope you see the beauty in the book of Esther and see why it's so important to us. May God change us by his word. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for the grace bound up in the book of Esther, your word. We know that your word is living and active, and we do pray, Holy Spirit, that you would apply this book to our hearts and that it would bear fruit eternity. We thank you that you are our promise-keeping God, that you are with us, that there is a better king, and that we can look back knowing that your hand has guided us even to this place. So many providences, so many sovereign cares, all out of a great big heart of love for your people. And we know with confidence that we're kept safe because Jesus said he would never leave us or forsake us. And we know that you will keep us to the end and we know that we will be at that banquet, that wonderful feast that will make King Xerxes' feast look like a picnic. Again, Father, we thank you for this word. We pray that you would use it. We pray that you would spend us up for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.